0: I'm William Henry. We've now come to the third in our series of podcasts on some of the main aspects of Ecclesiastes. And this discussion is going to be on time and eternity. And Michael and Sylvia Penny are here with me to think about that theme of time and eternity. So, first of all, what do we mean by that, time and eternity, in this context, Mike?
1: Well, uh, probably we could sum it up by saying that time relates to this life, and eternity relates to the life to come. So does the Bible have a lot
2: to say about time then, Sylvia? It certainly has. In fact, there's nearly 900 verses in the Bible that mention time.
0: 900? Gosh, I hope they're not all in Ecclesiastes.
2: No, don't worry. In the NIV, the word time appears 42 times in Ecclesiastes, so a bit more manageable.
1: Yeah, but we've got to be careful because we use the word time in different ways. For example, it can be a period of time. So Ecclesiastes 8.12 says that a person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time. But the word can also be used to mean a specific time, the right time for something to happen. Then just a few verses earlier, in verse 8 it is, it says, no one has power over the time of their death.
2: And added to these, you've also got the places where Solomon speaks about time without actually using the word itself. It's the same with eternity. That word only appears once in Ecclesiastes, but Solomon discusses the idea of eternity in other places, so it's a bit complicated.
0: Right. But Mike, a moment ago, you said that time relates to this life and eternity relates to the next life. Is that the sense in which it's consistently used in Ecclesiastes?
1: Yeah, well, virtually every occurrence of time in Ecclesiastes refers to something that happens on this earth. Something something that happens to man under the sun. For example, Ecclesiastes one says, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens.
0: Okay, you say virtually every occurrence.
1: Yeah, the only exception seems to be Ecclesiastes 3.17, where it says, there will be a time to judge every deed. And that's speaking of God's judgment, which takes place in the next life.
0: Okay, so 42 occurrences of time in Ecclesiastes. Can we
2: narrow it down a bit? Yes, I think we can. For example, 32 of the 42 are all in chapter 3. Right, that's that famous
0: passage, isn't it, about a time for this and a time for that? I suppose that's using time in this sense of a specific occasion rather than a period of time.
1: Yeah. Um, That passage covers a wide range of normal human activity, every activity under heaven, as Solomon puts it.
0: Okay, let's read some of it. Sylvia, would you like to start at verse two, please?
2: There is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, time to tear down and a time to build.
1: a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace.
0: All these contradictory activities, yet the preacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is saying here that there is a proper time for us to do one thing and a proper time for us to do the opposite.
2: Yes, and Ecclesiastes eight six sums it all up when it says, there is a proper time and procedure for every matter.
0: I suppose the problem is making sure that you do the right thing at the right time.
1: Yes, yes. It's interesting to take a closer look at a couple of them. I don't think we can go into every one of them in detail, but I would like to think about a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing.
0: So what do you think that's getting at?
1: Well, for example, remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 26 to 29. He says, because of the present crisis, from now on, those who have wives should live as if they did not.
0: Well, I think there's a bit of a debate, isn't there, over what crisis Paul was referring to there. So is he saying that there are times when a married man should refrain from embracing his wife to avoid bringing a child into the world?
1: Yes, that seems most likely. And remember... During the Nazi occupation of France during World War II, which was a serious crisis, it seems that many married couple resisted embracing as the birth rate in France dropped dramatically during that time.
2: And Solomon opened by saying effectively, there is a right time to be born, or as Charles Azan points out in his book, The Vain and Sane in Ecclesiastes, the Hebrew is better translated a right time to beget children.
0: Absolutely. It's not a good idea to bring children into the world if we're not in a position to take care of them.
2: That's very true. And here's another one. There's a time to be silent and a time to speak. I think most people would agree that we all get this wrong sometimes. On the one hand, blurting something out when it would be wiser to hold our tongues, or on the other hand, saying nothing when we could make a positive change in a situation. Both are as bad as each other. We actually need godly wisdom to get it right.
0: Right. But what do you think is the point that the preacher is trying to make by these, what is it, 14 pairs that contrast with one another and cover such a wide range of human experiences and emotions?
1: I, I must admit uh, I, that I see it as quite unsettling. We move or we are driven to and fro, from one activity, to the opposite, and back again. Nothing has any permanence. So Solomon says in verse 9 of Ecclesiastes 3, what do workers gain from their toil?
0: Yeah, that's similar to what he says in chapter 1, where he talks about the circular and repetitive nature of the seasons, the movements of the sun and the sea, and so on.
1: Yeah, that's right. And circular, repetitive movements don't achieve any more than doing one thing and then doing the opposite. Everything is temporary, and so it can all seem somewhat futile.
0: Yeah, and again in chapter 1, Solomon asks the same question that he asks in chapter 3. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? So I think there is something disturbing there about a a time for this and a time for that. I find it disturbing like you do, Mike. Do you agree with that, Sylvia?
2: Well, I think there's another way of looking at it. As you pointed out, Will, it's man under the sun that Solomon is talking about. When you bring God into the equation, it appears rather different.
0: In what way different?
2: Well, in verse 11 of chapter 3, Solomon says this. He that is, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. And I find it quite soothing to think of the gentle rhythms of life to and fro, where there's an appropriate time for each of these different activities.
1: And immediately, Solomon brings in another point. God has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end.
0: Right, so humanity has been given this concept of eternity, that there's more than this life under the sun, but we can't really get a grasp of it and fathom it out. So what should we do then?
2: Solomon tells us in the next verse, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God.
0: Okay, now, just to make sure I've got this, God is working his purposes out and we can't really see exactly what he's doing, I suppose, except to the extent that he's revealed it to us. So what we have to do is to enjoy life and all that it offers while trying to do what is right, bearing in mind that this life is not all there is because there's still eternity to come.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Well, Solomon says next. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him.
0: Sorry, how does that make people fear him?
1: Well, remember, the word translated fear basically means to be in awe of God, to to revere God. It does not mean to be afraid of him.
0: Oh yeah, we covered that in the second podcast of our series on wisdom, didn't we? But you know coming back to the the question why should knowing that everything god does endures forever result in us fearing him or being in awe of him
1: because of the fact that judgment lies ahead solomon solomon says in the next verse god will call the past into account
0: so men and women will ultimately be held accountable to god
1: yes and immediately in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3, the preacher goes well, goes on to give us this example where there is a corrupt judicial system. Um, Sylvia, could you read uh, those verses, please?
2: And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. So the time to judge every deed is after death.
1: Yep, that's right. And here we are back to what we touched on in the previous podcast on Ecclesiastes, death, resurrection and judgment.
2: Look at how Solomon draws his conclusion at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. In the first verse of chapter 12, he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth.
0: So if every deed is going to be assessed after death, we need to start walking on the right road early on in life so that we're not filled with regret later for things that we've done.
1: Yeah, that's right. And see how Solomon ends the book. These are his last words. Now, all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And that's in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14.
0: You know, I I find this quite confusing as a Christian. I mean, I thought all my sins were forgiven. So are you telling me that I'm going to be held accountable for everything I've ever said or done that's wrong?
2: No, we have to remember that believers don't have their sins judged as Christ died for our sins. But we do have our service assessed and we'll be rewarded or not according to the quality of our service for the Lord. Yeah.
1: Um, Paul refers to this idea in 2 Corinthians 5.10, where he tells the Corinthian Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the word in the Greek is bema, which is used of the umpire's chair in the games. The umpire decides which athlete will be awarded with which medal.
0: And I suppose our service that's being judged here. Means a lot more than just the number of sermons we've preached or how many sick people we've cared for. I suspect it also includes the extent to which we've allowed the Holy Spirit to mould us and develop His fruit in our lives. What Paul talks about, Paul talks about in Galatians five, where he deals with the subject of the fruit of the Spirit.
2: Yes, that's right. It seems all of our service for the Lord will be assessed and ultimately rewarded. As we must remember, Jesus said even a cup of water in his name will receive its reward. But returning to the judgment for sins, remember what Jesus said in John 5, verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged. has crossed over from death to life. That is not judged for their sins.
0: Okay, but what about unbelievers?
2: Well, they will have all their deeds judged by Jesus. Remember what Christ said a little later in John 5, verses 28 to 29. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned.
1: Yeah. And John also wrote about this at the end of Revelation. Remember, believers are raised to eternal life at the first resurrection, which takes place when Christ returns. But in Revelation chapter 20, verses 13, John tells us of a second resurrection, a a resurrection of the rest of the dead. There we read, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. So
0: unbelievers will be judged for what they have said and done. And so Solomon is giving people this advice on how to live. He's really arguing, isn't he, that there's a proper time for each of these contradicting actions, laughing or crying, speaking or remaining silent and so on. And it takes a wise person to know what that proper time is.
2: Yes, that's exactly what Solomon says in the next reference to time, which is in chapter 8, verses 4 to 6, which say this. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. But there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a person may be weighed down by misery.
0: Wait, 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 wait. What's all this talk about being weighed down by misery?
1: Well, it seems here that Solomon is giving advice on how to deal with those in authority. In our country, we can question those in authority, but in some parts of the world, even today, People may be weighed down by misery, as Ecclesiastes says. They have a lot to complain about, but they simply cannot do anything about it. They cannot even question or disagree with their leaders.
2: But even in a totalitarian state, when people may be weighed down with misery, Solomon seems to be saying that the person with wisdom would look for the proper time or the right opportunity to say something.
0: So then, a time to be silent and a time to speak then.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, the Lord showed by the rules and regulations he set up for the government of Israel in in the law of Moses, that his will was, and I still think is today, that people should live in freedom and justice. By application then, we have a duty and a responsibility to influence our society where we can, to bring it more in line with the Lord's standards
2: yes the early christians were a tiny group living in a totalitarian state so the effect that they could have was limited and yet the principles set out in scripture led christians thousands of years later to campaign for, for such things as the abolition of slavery and the improvement in prison conditions and the need for education
0: Yeah, I think one of the problems in our world in recent decades has been the rise of powerful, despotic rulers who threaten democracy right across the globe. And they oppress not only their own people, but the people in the countries around them. I mean, you think of places like Russia, China, North Korea and so on.
2: Yes, all powerful rulers are not just a feature of the Old Testament times here.
1: Yeah, that's certainly true. But Solomon makes an interesting comment in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. He says this, As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt.
0: What do you think he means by that? How do you lord it over others to your own heart?
1: Well, there's lots of examples in history, particularly in the Bible. We can think of the Assyrians who lorded it over the the northern kingdom of Israel, but they were overthrown by the Babylonians. Then the Babylonians who lorded it over the southern kingdom of Judah, well, they were conquered by the Medo-Persians. And even though the Medo-Persians were relatively good, they allowed the people to come back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, they fell to the Greeks. And the Greeks, well, they were conquered by the Romans. And so it goes on.
2: And then we can think of the various Roman emperors, almost demigods, who met an early death. And in later times, we can think of people like Mussolini and Hitler, and more recently Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein and others.
0: Yeah, it seems that nothing lasts forever. Leaders come and go. Empires come and empires go.
1: But, as Solomon says, by contrast, everything God does will endure forever.
0: And although an evil man may appear to be successful, there's a day of reckoning coming.
2: Yes, definitely. In Ecclesiastes 8 verse 12, Solomon says, Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him.
0: So there he is back to one of the main themes of Ecclesiastes, isn't he? There's judgment after death. We're reading about that earlier in chapter 3, verse 17. And it will go much better at that time for those who fear and reverence the Lord.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and Paul talked about this as well. Uh, for instance, in Galatians 6, 7, he says... Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows.
0: Yes, there's no way of escaping God's justice. You know, one of the other themes Solomon talks about uh, is this uncertainty that there is in life.
2: That's right. In Ecclesiastes 8, verses 7 to 8, he says this. Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? as no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. Wow, yeah,
0: that's the ultimate uncertainty, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but you get uncertainty all the way through life. And he points this out in Ecclesiastes 9, uh, verses 11 to 12. He says this, The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favour to the learned, but time and chance happens to them all. Moreover, no one knows when the hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare. so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. So, in effect, Solomon is saying here that some people no matter how able and learned and wise they may be, can just be unlucky. Time and chance happens to them all. So whether they are successful or not, to some extent, depends on what happens to them and what is happening in society around them.
0: Yeah, time and chance, There, there's an old sense in which we're using the word time, isn't it? But mm. he's right, isn't he, Solomon? Some people are hit by what he calls evil times, or what we might call hard times.
2: Exactly. The financial crash, the coronavirus epidemic, wars wiping out families, destroying property and forcing millions to become refugees. All of these happen on an apparently random basis and are impossible to avoid. Only God can see the full picture.
1: So what should we do then? Well, in Ecclesiastes 7.14, Solomon says this, When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this, God has made the one as well as the other.
0: Right, so what we're really saying is that since everything that is done under the sun will be assessed and judged by God, we need to fear him and do what's right. Right. And also, since there's so much uncertainty about our lives on earth and only God has a handle in the whole picture, then the best thing we can do is to fear him and to trust him through the uncertainty and through the bad times.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, that sums up, I think, what Solomon has to say about time. What about eternity?
1: Well, uh, as Sylvia said earlier, the word eternity only appears in Ecclesiastes once, though the idea of the afterlife is discussed in many other places. The one occurrence is in Ecclesiastes 3.11 where it says, he has also set eternity in the hearts of man.
0: I think that's a great thought, isn't it? We are stuck in time and space, but God is not. God has given us a yearning for eternity, but we're so limited and mortal, our mortality. That's the limitation, isn't it? A yearning for eternity. Wouldn't that be the same as yearning for immortality
2: then, Sylvia? Yes, I think it is, Will. But the scriptures tell us that God is the only one who has immortality. 1 Timothy 6 verses 15 to 16 says this, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. But don't some people think that humans
0: have an immortal soul?
1: Yeah, yeah, they do. But you do not find that in the Bible. Remember what Christ said in Matthew ten twenty eight. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body, in hell. So
0: we've got no natural immortality then?
2: No, we don't. But amazingly, God has promised to give believers immortality.
1: Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? That's correct. Um, We are told about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 47. Uh, This is what Paul wrote there. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep Death has been swallowed up in victory. Amen. And that
0: transformation from the mortal to the immortal will take place at Christ's second coming when we are raised from the dead.
2: That's right. And that links back to what Ecclesiastes says about resurrection. It's at resurrection when the mortal will be clothed with immortality and become imperishable. And that is when believers will see their first glimpse of eternity, which ecclesiastes says god has set in the human heart
0: right it's a wonderful prospect isn't it Mm. good way to end the podcast too next time we hope to look at the ideas of the good and the better in ecclesiastes so thank you very much for listening